Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 94 of the GDPR Weekly Show, and this week we have a specially extended episode for you because we just simply had so much information to pack in. And don't miss our competition as we come up to our 100th episode. More details of that to come later in the programme. So, coming up this week, we have... Information from the EDPB who have issued new guidance on GDPR overrides in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We then have some important guidelines on GDPR and returning to work and what you need to do when your employees return to work to stay GDPR compliant. And some of that might take you by surprise, so do have a listen to that article. We then have an update on the CERCO data breach which we brought to you two episodes ago on the GDPR Weekly Show. And we then have some information on hairdressers and beauty salons and how they might be affected in terms of GDPR after COVID-19. We then have an article about financial institutions and open banking and how that could have been affected by COVID-19 and GDPR. We then have news that settlement has been reached at last in the long-running Equifax data breach lawsuit. We then have details of a data breach affecting the popular content management system Joomla. We then have news of a data breach at Amtrak, the US railroad company. We then have an article which we've titled, You Did Change Your Password, Didn't You? And hopefully that gives you enough clue of what that article is about. We then have news of a data breach affecting the San Francisco City Corporation Pension Fund. And we then have finally this week news of a data breach affecting the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. So, as always, a good range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information useful and informative. Please note we also have a new email address from this week. So, if you have any feedback for us, please send it to feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com and we'll pick up the feedback from there. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, and wherever possible, we incorporate into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, we're not able to answer each email individually. Your Coronavirus Roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show. On Tuesday this week, the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, announced that it had released a statement on restrictions on data subject rights in connection with the state of emergency in EU member states amid the COVID-19 pandemic. In the statement, the EDPB said that under certain circumstances, Article 23 of the EU General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, allows for national derogations to data subject rights where necessary and proportionate in a democratic society to safeguard important objectives of general public interest of the EU or member states, including public health. The statement is in response to the Hungarian government's decree of May 4, 2020, which we brought to you on the GDPR Weekly Show a couple of episodes ago, suspending, until the state of emergency is revoked in Hungary, measures following data subject requests to exercise their rights with respect to personal data processing for the purpose of preventing, understanding, detecting and impeding the spread of COVID-19. In the EDPB statement, they emphasise that GDPR remains applicable and allows for an efficient response to the COVID-19 pandemic while also protecting individuals' rights and freedoms. The statement reiterates the main principles related to the restrictions on data subject rights in connection with the state of emergency in member states, including 
general, extensive or intrusive restrictions that void a fundamental right of GDPR cannot be justified. Limitations to data subjects' requests to exercise their rights and freedoms must be provided by a law that is sufficiently clear as to the circumstances in and conditions on which companies are allowed to use any such restrictions. Restrictions to the scope of data subject rights must be foreseeable, including with respect to their duration. So, i.e., you can't just suspend users' rights under GDPR, you have to say how long you'll suspend it to to a definite candidate. Restrictions should only be applied in limited circumstances and should genuinely meet an important objective of general public interest. This means that restrictions must be a necessary and proportionate measure in a democratic society to safeguard an important objective of general public interest of the EU or a member state. And by the way, for all these purposes, the UK is regarded as still being a member of the EU, so these changes will apply in the UK just as much as they do in the EU. According to the EDPB, restrictions contributing to the safeguard of public health in a state of emergency must be interpreted narrowly, i.e. you mustn't have specification creep. The guarantees provided for under Article 23.2 of the GDPR must fully apply. In particular, any legislative measure introducing restrictions to data subject rights must contain specific provisions as to, inter alia, the processing purposes and the categories of processing, the categories of personal data, the scope of the restrictions, the safeguards to prevent abuse or unlawful access or transfer, the specification of the controller or categories of controllers concerned, and the risks to the rights and freedoms of data subjects. Restrictions adopted in the context of a state of emergency suspending or postponing the application of data subject rights should be clearly limited in time, otherwise the restriction would equate to a de facto blanket suspension of GDPR rights and would not be considered compatible with the essence of fundamental rights and freedoms. And, in line with Article 571c of GDPR, national supervisory authorities should be consulted by national authorities in due time when contemplating the introduction of any restrictions under Article 23 of the GDPR. So what they're saying there is that the ICO, in the case of the UK, must be consulted by government before any changes are proposed to data rights which are covered under GDPR. And again, any changes to those data rights would only be allowed for a fixed period of time and would have to be shown to be in direct result of the COVID-19 pandemic. DDPB also announced it will issue guidelines on the implementation of Article 23 of GDPR in the months to come. And of course, once we see those guidelines, we will bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. This is an important coronavirus update. Stay home. Protect our NHS. As more of the UK economy eases its way back to work, and particularly from June the 15th when all non-essential retail shops will be able to reopen and many offices and other workplaces are also already starting to get back to work, we thought it was worthwhile spending some time looking at what actions businesses needed to take to protect their employees now they're back at work after COVID 19 and how they stay GDPR compliant during all of that. So the first thing, of course, is to carry out a risk assessment as recommended by the government and put together internal policies and procedures on how you're going to keep individuals safe during the course of their work. So if you like, a internal COVID-19 plan. 
So obviously there's the physical risk assessment in terms of making sure that people are staying two metres apart, issuing them with face masks if required, making sure you've got plenty of hand sanitizer around the place, making sure that people and staff and employees and any visitors to your premises are encouraged to wash their hands frequently. But from a data protection perspective and from a GDPR perspective, what do you need to do? Well, one of the first things you need to do is carry out a data protection impact assessment. Before you collect any personal data, organisations should consider the risk to the individual balanced with the need of the organisation or benefit of the individual by carrying out a data protection impact assessment. Now, of course, you're going to be collecting health data, and health data is classed as a special category of personal data, which puts it in a higher risk category, so the balance needs to be even more carefully examined to ensure that you've got appropriate protections in place. It's really important that you carry out these data protection impact assessments because they do form an important evidence base for you to demonstrate your compliance with GDPR and they're also a practical way to work through GDPR principles and how they need to be interpreted into the context of your work environment. Now if you need any help with carrying out these data protection impact assessments please don't hesitate to get in contact with us. We have a brand new email address this week. Um, we've now moved to our own website for the GDPR weekly show and so if you have any questions about uh, carrying out a data protection impact assessment please email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will get in touch and help you through the process of conducting your data protection impact assessment. Remembering that GDPR has a principle of purpose limitation and data minimization, personal data you collect must be for a specific purpose and limited to what is necessary for such a purpose. What this means in reality is that you should assess and identify the types of personal data that you're going to need to process in order to ensure that your employees can carry out their work while complying with social distancing, hygiene and minimal contact with others. An example might be using CCTV to ensure that employees comply with social distancing. Obviously, that's going to be on top of putting physical tape and things on the floor so that people can identify where two metres is. Should anyone who's come into contact with an employee who tests positive for COVID-19, then they're going to need to be notified. So make sure you separate the data between what you actually need to collect so that if one of your employees does become infected with COVID-19, you can notify people who've come in contact with that person against anything that might be just a nice to have and not necessary to be collected because you should be keeping your data collection to a minimum. You must be clear why your data is being processed is necessary to meet your your organisation's stated objectives and obligations, which in this case is to keep everyone safe from 12ID19. So the next step is establishing the lawful basis for processing. Once you're clear on what data you are processing and why, then you need to ensure that the data falls in one of the lawful bases of processing as provided in GDPR. For processing standard types of personal data, such as name and contact details, you can probably rely on legitimate interest. You could also use compliance with a legal obligation that you owe to employees to provide them with a safe working environment or to any visitors to provide them with a safe environment to be in. For health information and other types of special categories of personal data, in the case of this top ID19 outbreak, you can rely on vital interest as your reason for holding the additional data because you're carrying out your obligations as an employer in terms of safety of health and safety. 
With some employers, and depending on context, it may be relevant to consider processing on grounds of substantial public interest or medical diagnosis or public health. An example here might be if you are yourself a local authority, for example. It's important to note that you shouldn't ask your employees for consent to hold this additional data. You don't need to. And the recommendation from the ICO indeed is that you don't ask for consent for this additional data. What you do need to do though is you need to let your employees know what you're now selecting and this is almost certainly going to lead to you needing to update your privacy notice because or privacy policy because you're almost certainly now holding some data which you hadn't originally intended and wouldn't be in your privacy policy. An example might be that you check your employees' temperature when they come into work every day. Well, I very much doubt that your privacy policy covers that already. So do have a good look at your privacy policy and see what needs amending to take into account the extra data that you're now holding. Again, if you need any help with that, then please send an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will get back in touch with you and indeed we will look to put a template for the changes to the privacy policy available on the GDPR Weekly Show website, gdprweeklyshow.com, probably sometime towards the middle or end of next week. The other thing to bear in mind on the privacy policy is that you should not only state that you're selecting, let's say, the temperature of your employees and visitors when they come into your premises but what decisions you're going to make with that information i.e you might say if the employee's temperature is above a certain level then they will be told to go home and self-isolate and report themselves to the nhs track and trace service rather than coming into work where you need to think very carefully is when it comes to striking the balance between keeping staff informed about potential confirmed COVID-19 cases and the right of an individual to have their medical data protected. And so it's recommended as far as possible that if one of your employees reports they do have COVID-19 or you suspect they've got COVID-19, that you should, well in fact you must, notify those employees who work closely with them but you should try and avoid identifying the individual if you possibly can. Now, I appreciate there are situations where, particularly in a small company or a small group of people, it's probably going to be impossible to keep the identity secret because if you only have four people and one of them is suddenly not there today and then you tell the other three that they've been in contact with somebody you suspect they're having trouble by D19, it's not exactly rocket science for them to work out who that person is. But nonetheless, you should avoid naming that person yourself. Where your employee reports that they may now have COVID-19 and they've been in contact with others outside of your organisation, let's suppose they've had visitors to your premises, then you must make sure that you notify those individuals as soon as possible. Now, what that might mean is, contra to what we would normally say, you may need to select more information from your visitors to your premises because obviously it's not much use knowing that Mr. Jones visited Mr. Smith on Thursday and now Mr. Smith's gone down with Top ID on Monday if you don't know the other person's telephone number or email address. So you might need to temporarily increase the data in your visitors book to collect those visitors uh, email addresses and telephone numbers and of course you should be having a minimum number of visitors to your premises at the current time anyway but it's inevitable that some visits will take place you're also probably going to have to share that information with government departments and so again when you're drafting your revision to your privacy policy it's important that you include that within the privacy policy that you will be data sharing with government bodies 
The key thing with all of this, and I can't stress this strongly enough, is to document the measures that you've taken. Make sure you do do your data protection impact assessment. Make sure you do update your privacy policy. Make sure you keep the old privacy policy and date them each one so that you know which, what was changed because at some point, hopefully, we will return to normal or at least a new normal and these changes to the privacy policy can be removed and you can revert back to your current privacy policy. But talking of documentation, this documentation, the data protection impact assessment, should not only be in your GDPR documentation, you should put it in your Top ID 19 plan as well. And also consider putting in place an appropriate policy document which should deal specifically with the collection and processing of health data for this particular COVID-19 pandemic. Updating your organisation's record of processing activities to include any new data that's now being processed. And keep records of your data protection impact assessment in particular for processing of data for COVID-19 purposes. Now the ICO has recently stated that during the COVID-19 pandemic it will approach enforcement in an empathetic and pragmatic way. But this should not be mistaken as a free pass to disregard the requirements under the Data Protection Act or indeed under GDPR. In fact, that the regulator, the ICO, has recently produced guidance on the subject of workplace testing goes to show that this is an area of interest to them. So do bear that in mind. Don't think, oh well, we're only a little, we don't need to do that. Or, oh well, we've never had a visit from the ICO, so we don't need to do that. Just make sure you do do it. Keep your house in order on this. It is important, not just from a regulatory point of view, but also for ensuring a safe environment for your employees, which surely is what any good employer wants to do. We appreciate that it's a challenge for many organisations to be able to do this and that's why we're making our specialists available to help you. So as I've said several times in this article and I, I will stress again, if you have anything where you need help on this, just send an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will get in touch and help you through whatever problems you are having. Stay home, stay safe. If you're a regular listener to the GPR Weekly Show, you'll remember that back in episode 92, we reported a data breach at Serco in relation to COID-19 track and trace staff where their details had been subject to a data breach due to misuse of the CC field in an email rather than BCC. This week, the Department for Health and Social Care the HSC has confirmed that it's undertaken an investigation into the data breach by Serco, which accidentally shared hundreds of coronavirus contact tracers' email addresses. In a letter to Shadow Minister Rachel Reeves on the 1st of June, the Innovation Minister Lord Bethel said both Serco and DHSC's data protection officer were performing internal investigations into the breach, which the department has now confirmed have been completed. Serco, which is recruiting, coaching and managing staff for the contact tracing program that will support the easing of coronavirus lockdown measures, apologised in May after it shared the email addresses of 296 people it had recruited to join the contact tracing program. The email addresses were visible to all recipients of an email about training for the new recruits. It's a very simple error and in our experience the most common error probably that gives rise to a data breach where someone's put a lot of email addresses into the cc field of an email rather than the bcc field and so we would emphasize to you as we did at the time that if you are sending an email to more than one individual and particularly if you're sending it to individuals outside of your organization then make sure that you use bcc rather than cc and then those individuals can't see who else you've sent the email to and that is very very important 
the government often falls foul of this across its different departments. Indeed, it's had previous instances of use of the CC rather than BCC field, administration of EU settlement scheme applicants, and indeed by the Home Office when dealing with Windrush victims last year. According to the government, some 25,000 contact traces have been recruited so far to identify and contact people who come into contact with someone who has coronavirus, COVID-19. People contacted through the programme, which reports today in the press suggest will not be fully up and running until September, must then self-isolate to prevent further spread of the infection. A DHSC spokesperson told us, We have closed an investigation into a minor error and we are satisfied processes have been strengthened to prevent this happening again. If you listened to this back in episode 92, you'll remember that immediately after the breach, Serco had said it was not planning to report itself to the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, over the incident. And if you remember, we said that we felt that whilst they could probably justify that in normal circumstances because it's only a small volume of people and the only information leaked is the email address, given the public interest in this scheme at the moment, we felt it would be in their best interest to actually report it to the ICO. Anyway, I'm pleased to confirm that the Serco have now reported the breach to the Information Commissioner. In his letter, Lord Bethel said, We expect Serco to put in place remedial measures to stop this error being repeated, including technological control and staff training. When the breach became public, a spokesperson for Serco said the company had apologised and reviewed its processes to make sure it did not happen again. The letter exchanged between Lord Bethel and Rachel Reeves came about after Rachel Reeves wrote to the Cabinet Office Minister Michael Dove on the 21st of May calling for an investigation into the data breach. In her letter, Rachel Reeves said she was alarmed by the incident and that it was particularly troubling that a company that is being trusted with some of the most sensitive work in our national effort against the virus seems to struggle with the most basic aspect of data privacy. We need some clarity from the government about why and how a searcher came to be awarded this contract and we need reassurances that contact tracing contact tracing programme is in safe hands, she said. The Shadow Minister asked Doe to set out the consequences Serto would face for the breach, the assurances the company had given to the government to demonstrate it could be trusted with data of its workers and the public, and details of DHSC's contract with Serco. Responding on behalf of Dove, Lord Bethel said that no programme data relating to members of the public will be held on Serco systems as the data will be accessed by government-owned systems. He said all data held in the NHS's Top ID19 data store would remain under control of the NHS at all times. I'm not sure that's 100% true because our understanding from other conversations we've had over the Job ID 19 tracking is that a lot of the data will be held by Public Health England rather than the NHS, but that's being pedantic maybe. Lord Bethel went on to say, only information relevant to stopping the transmission of Top ID 19, specifically the information needed to identify close contacts of cases and provide them with advice, is collected through the contact tracing system. This information will be entered into a secure system operated by Public Health England and will only be shared when necessary for public health purposes. It would not be used for questions relating to immigration status or benefits, he said. Addressing Rachel Reeves' questions about the contracts, Lord Bethel said, I can assure you that the relevant procedures were followed in relation to both the procurement process and the assessment of Soto's ability to deliver and their suitability for the role. He added that Soto was an approved contact centre supplier on the Commercial Services Contact Centre Framework, a process that included due diligence and evaluation on their capability to deliver contact centre services. He said DHSC had not yet finalised the value of its contract with Serco for the tracing programme, but would release more information in due course. If we receive any more information on this, either from Serto or from DHSC, then we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home. 
protect the NHS, save lives. Ask many people what they're really looking forward to once things start to get back to some sense of normal. And most people will probably say a trip to the hairdresser because with salons having been closed now for some three months, most people are starting to show signs of either really long hair or attempts at um, DIY hairdressing. But a trip to the hairdresser might be different than we're used to because there's going to have to be various changes. Obviously, there's going to have to be physical changes in terms of there being uh, probably less chairs in the salon because they need to be two metres apart. But there will also be some GDPR implications for salons to take into mind because salons have to keep much more careful details of who visits their salon and who's seen by which uh, hairdresser or barber or therapist, whatever it is you're doing in the salon. And so there will be a need now, probably, this is still being confirmed with government, but it's looking like this is the way it's going to be, that it won't be possible for salons to operate with people just wandering in off the street. People would need to pre-book their appointment at a set time, and by doing that, then they will need to wait outside the salon until their appointment time, then come into the salon, have their treatment, and then leave. But it's important that the salon record who arrived, their address details, their telephone number, their email address, and what time they left and who saw them whilst they were there, even if it's down to simply somebody giving them a cup of coffee, because should that person then go down with Top ID 19, then there'll be a need to contact all of the people who were in the salon at that time so not just the person who performed the treatment on that individual but who else was in the salon that includes staff and customers and for that um, therapist or hairdresser or whatever who performed the treatment to self-isolate themselves for 14 days which of course is going to cause another lot of whole disruption to the provision of services by the hairdressing salon or massage salon or beauty salon and there's another reason why everyone probably is going to have to pre-book appointments because there needs to be an, a, a possibility of cancelling those appointments or deferring them should the therapists themselves have to be on 14 days self-isolation. So another example of how COVID-19 is going to have an effect on the whole of society really as we know it, certainly in terms of our retail transactions and the extra information which therapists are going to need to hold about their customers. So they're going to need to hold, let's say, the, their name, their address, their telephone number, their email address, when they arrived at the salon, what time they left the salon. So again, it's another example, of course, of where their privacy policy is going to have to be amended to show that extra information that they're now gathering, particularly if they choose to gather even more information. Some salons, for example, may wish to take your temperature when you arrive at the salon. And if they take that temperature and record the temperature, then again, that needs to be included in their privacy notice. They need to carry out a data protection impact assessment. All of the things that we spoke about in the last article here on the GDPR Weekly Show. But I just wanted to include this as an example of one particular industry where GDPR and COVID-19 are going to talk noticeable changes in the way that the industry operates. Over the next few weeks we'll probably look at different industries and see how they're going to be impacted so that you can get a broader picture of how COVID-19 and GDPR are going to work together to help defeat the virus but also keep everybody's data secure. If you've got a particular industry that you'd like us to look at then please drop us an email to feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com and we will uh, consider looking into that industry that you're recommending us to have a look at. 
You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Despite the obstacles caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, financial institutions in the UK and the EU are still thinking positively about open banking. Financial institutions and their regulators are clinging to the vision of open banking, even as they work to answer complicated questions brought about by COVID-19 surrounding online payments, security and data privacy. The banking regulators are currently addressing what data can be shared compliantly under GDPR. For example, EU and UK financial authorities are also fielding a rising number of questions from merchants seeking to understand how the strong customer authentication tenant of the revised payment service directive, PSD, can affect their acceptance of online and contactless payments. Authorities in Australia and America, meanwhile, are seeking to address changes in how their own merchants and consumers think about data privacy thanks to the increase in online transactions brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. I think it's fair to say that the majority of EU merchants are still attempting to understand what SCA actually means for them during the pandemic as regulators look to make compliance easier. For instance, here in the UK, the contactless payment limit has dropped from £30 to £45. Merchants need to be able to settle payments quickly, which means they need to be able to determine the risks of these transactions just as quickly. Making sure the transaction risk analysis tools attached to online payments can swiftly determine their legitimacy is thus critically important. This may mean that many merchants will need to re-examine how they are currently processing online transactions and what solutions should be employed for a more seamless experience. From the regulator's viewpoint, the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, is looking to reassure concerned merchants and financial entities wondering how they can comply with data protection rules like GDPR. The regulator has promised flexibility as how it, in how it will enforce the regulations as the virus continues. Elizabeth Denham, the Information Commissioner, has promised to take the pandemic's influence into account when examining companies and if they've stayed compliant with the rules. One of the things GDPR monitors is the collection of medical data. We've discussed that several times in this episode of GDPR Weekly Show, something that's become more complicated during the pandemic. Several companies are looking to respond to the need for tools and technologies that can help consumers navigate COVID-19 risks without breaching EU rules like SCA and GDPR. The Fraunhofer Heinrich Hertz Institute for Telecommunications in Germany has developed a mobile application that can help its users track the virus without breaching the data collection rules set up under GDPR. So this is very much using the Apple and Google technology rather than the attempt by NHS Digital, which we've discussed several times on the GDPR Weekly Show in the last five or six episodes, to have a solution which deposits information centrally. The Fraunhofer Heinrich Hertz Institute of Telecommunications Solution doesn't do that, it just keeps the data on the phone. But even so, EU regulators have yet to confirm if the tool is fully compliant with GDPR. This is likely to be an ongoing issue as the whole commercial world adopts, and indeed the whole world adopts, to the new status quo under COVID-19, which is likely to be with us for at least the next few months, if not the next few years. And so there will be changes to the way that online transactions and indeed probably in-store transactions operate. It's notable that in the UK, many retailers now are refusing to take cash and insisting on contactless payments. And it would be interesting to see what effect that has on the overall shift from cash to electronic payments. I have heard rumours that there are some retailers who seriously believe that this could be the beginning of the end for physical cash in the UK. So we'll probably come back to this. In fact, I'm certain we will come back to this and particularly the GDPR impacts as things change in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. 
We are counting down to episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. As work continues on the development of various Tor ID19 tracking apps across Europe, the science behind the technology and the idea of using mobile phone data to track the progress of the epidemic is becoming much clearer. Decision making and evaluation of interventions during all stages of the pandemic life cycle require specific, reliable and timely data not only about infections but also about human behaviour, especially mobility and physical co-presence, i.e. who's in the same room as each other or in the same vicinity as each other. Scientists argue that mobile phone data, when used properly and carefully, represents a critical arsenal of tools for supporting public health actions across early, middle and late stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. This development is taking place worldwide and current countries involved and known to be developing COVID-19 tracking apps using mobile devices include Austria, Belgium, Chile, China, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, United States and of course here in the United Kingdom where NHS Digital have their system on trial in the Isle of Wight currently. One of the things that is perhaps frustrating though is that there's little coordination or information exchange between these national or even regional initiatives. Although ad hoc mechanisms leveraging mobile phone data can be effectively but not easily developed at the local or national level, regional or even global collaborations seem to be much more difficult given the number of participants, the range of interests and priorities, the variety of legislation concerned and the need to protect civil liberties. The global scale and spread of the COVID-19 pandemic highlights the need for a more harmonised or coordinated approach. What's common is that passively generated mobile phone data has emerged as a potentially valuable data source to infer human mobility and social interaction. Tool detail records are arguably the most researched type of mobile data in this context. Tool detail records are collected by mobile operators for billing purposes. Each record contains information about the time and the cell tower that the phone was connected to when the interaction took place. Tool detail records are event-driven. In other words, the record only exists if the phone is actively in use. Additional information includes sighting data obtained when a phone is seen on the network, i.e. how the network knows which mask to send your mobile phone call to to connect to your mobile phone. Routine information, including highly accurate location data, is also collected through mobile phone applications at a large scale by location intelligence companies or by ad hoc apps. In addition, proximity between mobile phone users can be detected via Bluetooth functionality, and that's that Bluetooth functionality which is being used by the NHS Digital Solution, the Apple and Google Solution, and indeed various other solutions being developed around the world. But each of these data types requires different processing frameworks and raise complex ethical and political concerns which have to be satisfied. In the early recognition and initiation phase of the pandemic, responders focused on situational analysis and the fast detection of infected cases and their contacts, so-called track and trace. During the acceleration phase, when community transmission reaches exponential levels, which we saw in the UK here back a few weeks ago, the focus is on interventions for containment, which simply involves social contact and mobility restrictions. At this stage, it's aggregated data that's much more important than individual data because it simply would be impossible to do track and trace on all of the contacts of a mobile phone when you've got thousands upon thousands of people being affected every day. It just would not work. 
But during the deceleration and preparation phases, as the peak of infections is passed, restrictions will likely be lifted. Continued situational monitoring will be important as the COVID-19 pandemic is expected to come in waves. And of course, that's what the whole world is looking for nervously at the moment, is that we all seem to now, with maybe the exception of Brazil, be past the first phase or the first peak. But everyone looks nervously to see where the second peak is coming from, or indeed if a second peak is coming. Now that the figures are going down again, the number of cases are going down and we're getting better at what we're doing, then near real-time data on mobility and hotspots will be important to understand how lifting and re-establishing various measures translates into people's behaviour, especially to find the optimal combination of measures at the right time and to balance these restrictions with aspects of economic vitality. After the pandemic has subsided, mobile data will be helpful for post-hoc analysis of the impact of different interventions on the progression of disease and cost-benefit analysis of any mobility restrictions. During this phase, digital contact tracing technologies might be deployed, such as that in use in Korea and in Singapore, the aim at minimising the spread of the disease as mobility restrictions are lifted. At this stage, this is when it's making use of Bluetooth low energy functionality on smartphones, ensuring that personal data and computation stay entirely on an individual's phone. And that's important for data sharing or rather data security because it means that no one knows other than your phone which other phones it's been in contact with or been in proximity to as opposed to the NHS digital proposed model which stores that information centrally. And we've discussed that in several previous episodes of the GDPR weekly show so if you're interested in that please listen back to the previous few episodes and you'll pick up on our thoughts and our conversation on how that part of the operation works here in the UK or is proposed to work. Now some people have with some justification said why is it taking us so long to get to where we are now why hasn't this happened faster given the seriousness of the epidemic why has it taken so long well there are five main reasons for that I think The first is that governments and public authorities as a whole, and this is a sweeping generalisation, so anyone who's in that area, please don't get offended by this, but taken as a whole, they tend to lack a digital mindset and a capacity for both processing information that's often complex and requires multidisciplinary expertise. For example, mixing location data with health data with modelling data requires quite a skill set and quite a diagnostic skill set but an entrepreneurial skill set at the same time. And if you look back, particularly in the UK, over various large government development projects involving IT, the government has proved time and time again it's not particularly good at it. Um, And so hence the need for private companies to step in and fill that gap. And if it's bad at central government, the problems are exacerbated at local government, which are precisely authorities doing the frontline work in most situations. In addition, many public authorities and decision makers are not aware of the value that mobile phone data would provide for decision making and are often used to making decisions without knowing the full facts and under conditions of certainty. Second reason is that despite substantial efforts, access to data remains a challenge. Most companies including the mobile network operators, tend to be very reluctant to make their data available, even if it's aggregated and anonymised, to anyone outside their organisation. Apart from data protection issues, such data is often seen, and indeed in some legitimacy, is seen as being a commercial asset, thus limiting the potential use for humanitarian goals if there's no sustainable models to support the operational system. 
It's also important, of course, to realise that not all mobile network operators in the world are equal in terms of data maturity. Some are actively sharing data as a business already, while others have hardly started to collect and use any data at all themselves, let alone thought about how they're going to share that data with other people. Thirdly, the use of mobile phone data raises legitimate public concerns about privacy, data protection and civil liberties. If you've got a relatively controlling regime, it's not so difficult, which is why in China, South Korea and to a degree in Israel, then this tracking, tracing via mobile phone has just been accepted as something that happens. Here in the UK and across the rest of the EU, I think most people are a little wary of central government knowing exactly where they've been, who they've been into contact with, with their mobile phone. Why would you want central government to know that information? Well, in this case, central government needs to know that information, or at least your phone needs to know that information, because otherwise it can't notify people where you've been close to, should you be unfortunate enough to fall victim to the COVID-19 epidemic. The other thing, of course, is that in a democratic state, it can be harmful to try and manage people's mobility, although it's interesting to note that in the UK, at least, that's been widely accepted. There's been actually very little public protest at people being told to stay at home. And I think that took people by surprise. It certainly took central government by surprise. But nonetheless, the longer it goes on, and if there's a need to re-put that in place, so i.e. you let you relax the conditions, you let everybody out on the street, you let everybody go back more or less to what they were doing, then all of a sudden you clamp down on it again. Will there be a willingness to do that a second time? Who knows? The fourth problem is that researchers and technology people frequently fail to articulate their findings in clear, actionable terms that respond to practical, political and technical questions. Researchers and domain experts tend to define the scope and direction of analytical problems from their perspective and not necessarily from the perspective of government's needs. One of the problems you always have is that different organisations or different subsets of organisations are all looking at the same problem but they're looking at it through a different lens. And bringing all that together takes time. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. And finally, the final reason is that there's little political will and resources invested to support preparedness for something that might not happen. So getting government to spend money on developing an app now that the pandemic's in place is easy, or relatively easy. Trying to get them to do that when the pandemic is just a theoretical thing that might happen at some point in the future, but hey, if we're really lucky, it might not, particularly when we've just come out of a period of austerity, is far more difficult. And so that's really why there haven't been preparations in place for this to happen, because no one wanted it to happen, and no one had really spent money expecting it to happen. Now, none of these five points are insurmountable, but they do require a clear call to action, and time is of the essence. It requires a call to action now. And so I really, really hope that organisations across the world, whether they're governments or commercial organisations or local authorities or charities or whatever, will all sit down and decide to share information amongst themselves because it's an old belief of mine that no one has a monopoly on good ideas and so we really should be working together on this this problem is too big for any individual company or any individual country to think it can solve it by itself and now the rest of this week's news Settlement was finally reached this week in a long-running lawsuit against Equifax following the data breach way back in 2017. The settlement has been reached in the Equifax data breach lawsuit between CUNA, Leagues and Credit Unions and Equifax. The case dates back to October 2017 when Equifax suffered a data breach that exposed personal information of more than 145 million consumers and 209,000 credit card numbers. 
CUNA, along with certain other institutional plaintiffs, were recently allowed back as plaintiffs to join institutions that issued compromise cards as plaintiffs. The settlement class will be limited to financial institutions that had alerted on payment cards as a result of the breach. Class members will be permitted to make claims for losses attributable to the alerted on payment cards as well as damages they suffered resulting from their customers' personally identifiable information exposure. CUNA President and CEO Jim Nussel said credit unions have borne substantial costs as a result of this massive data breach and the settlement offers recourse on the path toward making affected credit unions whole again. He went on to say breaches like this are occurring on a regular basis and the only thing that will prevent them in the future is a strong national data security standard that holds all entities accountable. CUNA and the leagues look forward to continuing our engagement with Congress to enact robust data security requirements for all we handle consumers personal information. The settlement provides up to $4.50 for each alerted on payment card as well as up to $5,000 per financial institution for its documented damages claim resulting from personally identifiable information theft for class members. The total amount being offered for these two components is understood to be in the region of $5.5 million. Equifax has also agreed to spend $25 million to enhance its data security measures and compliance with the payment card industry data security standard, PCI DSS. So hopefully that brings this long-running saga with Equifax to a close. If there is any further update from Equifax, we will of course update you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Often imitated but never duplicated. Popular open-source content management system Joomla has disclosed that an internal audit unearthed a major data leak that exposed a full backup of the site on an Amazon Web Services AWS bucket owned by a third party this week. In its incident notification, Joomla said the data leak potentially exposed full names, business addresses, business email addresses, business phone numbers, company URLs, nature of business encrypted passwords, IP addresses and newsletter subscription preferences of around 2,700 individuals. Juma said that full backups of the JRD site were stored in a third-party company Amazon Web Services S3 bucket owned by a former team leader and each bucket copy, each backup copy included a full copy of the website including all the data. Even though most of the data was public, a lot of private data such as unpublished, unapproved listings and tickets were also exposed. The risk to individuals is that the data will be used for marketing or advertising purposes without their consent. However, Juma would team distress that individuals had supplied the data to submit it to a public database so they were aware the data would be public. However, certain data that was provided by the individuals was not intended to be public but is now available. The data subject rights of consent, ability to withdraw from direct marketing and ability to withdraw consent would be impacted. However, not all or most data subject rights will be impacted or limited by this data breach. Following the discovery, Joomla issued a complete data deletion request to the involved third party, mandated the webmaster's team to conduct regular audits of the Joomla.org websites, enforced the signature of a non-disclosure agreement to all people with access to personal data, and started the preparation of a data processing addendum to be signed by all people with access to personal data. Even though Joomla stated that the risk of loss of control over data is high in this case, it determined that the risk to individual data subjects is low to medium as it could not see a significant or economic disadvantage that could affect the data subject. In a statement, Joomla said that data would be typically used for the purposes of identity theft or fraud, such as driver's license numbers, social security numbers, mother's maiden name, were not included in the database. Usernames and passwords were included in the database, however, Joomla has always encrypted passwords and does not hold them as free text. It was therefore considered that the risk for individuals in terms of password recoverability was low. 
However, despite this assessment, Joomla said that in the spirit of full transparency, it had decided to issue a notification about the data exposure in order to make all those who potentially might have been affected aware. It went on to say, We apologise for the inconvenience. We are deeply committed to providing the best and most secure infrastructure for our community. Thank you for support and understanding. All we would add in this situation, as we would normally, is that if you are a Joomla customer and you believe your data may have been affected in this way, then it may well be worth changing not just your password on Joomla, but anywhere else that you use that same password. We're not expecting there to be any further update on this story, but should we hear anything from Joomla, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the DTPL Weekly Show. Celebrate our 100th episode with us and you could win £100. Just name the five countries where we have most listeners worldwide. Listen out for more details. Thanks, Isabella. Yes, it's true. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning £100 when we come to celebrate episode 100 in a few weeks' time is to guess which five countries we have the most listeners in. Just list down the five countries, put them on an email to us, and one lucky person will win £100. We also have some limited edition t-shirts and mugs for runners-up. So don't delay, do it today. Hey Mike, tell our listeners what they have to do. Send your entry to competition at gdprradioshow.com Amtrak, the National Railroad Passenger Corporation for the US, has disclosed a data breach that may have resulted in the compromise of customer personally identifiable information, PII. The data breach was discovered on April the 16th, 2020. In a letter to the Attorney General's office in Vermont, made public on April the 29th, Amtrak said an unknown third party had managed to fraudulently access Amtrak Guest Rewards account. The Amtrak Guest Rewards Service allows passengers to rack up points when they travel and then they later exchange these points for discounts, hotels and gift cards, amongst other things. So, a bit like air miles in, in a way. The user gained access by brute force um, using compromised usernames and passwords, although it's possible, of course, that these credentials may have been previously leaked or stolen from another third party. Amstrad says that some personal information was viewable, although the company has not specifically said what data may have been compromised. However, Amtrak was keen to emphasise that social security numbers, credit card information and other financial data was not involved in the data breach. Users that receive a notice that their Amtrak Guest Rewards account that was potentially included in the breach will also note that their accounts will have an active forced password reset. The company's security team said that after detecting suspicious activity, access was revoked within a few hours. In a statement, Amtrak said that the company is taking this matter very seriously and is taking steps to help prevent incidents like this from happening again. It went on to say that external cybersecurity teams have been engaged to investigate the issue alongside law enforcement and Amtrak is working on bolstering its security posture. Amtrak says there's no evidence at present that customer information has been exploited, such as through sales or identity fraud. Affected customers are being offered one-year free Experian credit monitoring membership. If we receive any update from Amtrak, we will speak to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You'll often hear us say when we talk about data breaches that users are recommended to change their password afterwards. This is always the standard guidance that's given out, and yet, disappointingly, it's been found in a study this week that around two-thirds of people who receive such a notification after a data breach never actually change their password. And what's worse is that one-third who do change the password take more than three months to get round to it, and many of those replace their old passwords with even weaker ones. 
Even more intriguingly, though perhaps not surprisingly, those who did change their passwords tended on average to pick a replacement that was more similar than before to all the other passwords. In other words, if you aren't using a password manager to generate truly random passwords for you, the research invites you to infer that your password choices will tend to influence each other and thus that your passwords become less varied over time. That might not benefit someone who steals data very much, but it doesn't exactly do you any favours either. In short, humans really aren't good at picking random strings of characters, but then they aren't very good at reacting to data breach advice either, it seems. So, if you hear that you've been involved in a data breach and you're asked to change your password, what should you do? Well, the first thing is, don't delay, do it today. By changing your password quickly, if you use that same password elsewhere, you're less likely for anyone who's stolen that data to be able to make real use of it. Second thing is don't take shortcuts. There's no point just adding a one onto the end of what your password was before. Think of a different word. Think of a different combination of characters. Whatever you do, think of a different way of doing it. A suggestion is to think your three short words, put them in a random combination, and use those three short words as your password rather than any individual word, or use a password manager, or just think up a random collection of characters. But if it is a random collection of characters, then don't add things like FB on the end for Facebook and TW on the end for Twitter, because those people who steal passwords expect you to do that sort of thing. By the same token, though, however strong you make your password, never believe you're invincible. Someone who steals passwords probably won't crack your password if it's a 15-character password that's totally random and perhaps it's got an exclamation mark and an at sign in it as well. But don't take it for granted. So if you have a password like that, don't think, oh, well, I don't need to change my password. Make sure that you do change it. Why take the risk? And the other thing is, more and more things now are using two-factor authentication. So you have some external device that you have to enter details from as well as your password. Don't make that an excuse to have a weak password. Have a strong password plus two-factor authentication, then you really have got a strong solution. We can't stop data breaches from happening, but we can lessen their impact if people remember to change their passwords when they're requested to do so. So if that's you and you think, oh yeah, I got something on that a few weeks ago, I haven't done that yet. Well, as soon as you finish listening to this broadcast, or in fact, whilst you're listening to the podcast, why don't you go in now and change your password? You've tried the rest and not impressed. Take a chance and try the best. We have news from San Francisco of a pension data breach which may have exposed city retirees' bank and tax information. The San Francisco Employees Retirement System, the City Workers' Pension Fund, has reported a data breach affecting around 74,000 of its members. The pension system's vendor, 10Up Inc., said an outside party accessed the test data server with members' information on February 24, 2020. The server was closed and 10Up Inc. said there was no evidence information was removed but could not confirm whether the data had been viewed or copied. The data, which was last updated in August 29, 2018, may have included first names, home addresses, dates of birth, designated beneficiary information and SFERS website usernames and passwords, the fund revealed on Tuesday. Retired pension members may have had 1099R tax form information and bank routing numbers exposed. Your personal financial information may be misused, the pension fund said in a statement. Social security numbers and bank routing numbers were not included, SFERS said. An investigation is ongoing and all members are required to reset their passwords. Turns back to our previous article, of course, this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. 
The breach occurred shortly before another city agency, the San Francisco International Airport, reported hacks of SFOConstruction.com and SFOConnect.com, two websites used by suppliers in March. And long-term listeners to the GDPR Weekly Show will know that we covered those at the time. If we receive any more information from the city authorities in San Francisco about this data breach, we will, of course, bring it to you as soon as we possibly can. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada disclosed a security breach on Thursday, which they said had affected over 329,000 people. The association said hackers had obtained information that mainly relates to the distribution of its magazine, so including names, home addresses and email addresses. It said in cases where passwords and credit card numbers were obtained, all were protected by encryption. The association went on to say that after discovering the breach, immediate steps were taken to identify and notify the people affected and that it has now further enhanced its security measures. CPA Canada President and CEO Joy Thomas said, Safeguarding the information in our care is one of our most important responsibilities and we sincerely regret any concern this incident may cause. CPA Canada said those impacted by the security breach should remain vigilant about any emails they receive requesting to provide sensitive information as they may be a phishing attack. They're also urging individuals not to click on any links or attachments in such emails, even if emails appear to come from CPA Canada. Provincial and regional CPA partners were not targeted in this data breach. As normal, if we receive any further information from CPA, we will of course bring it to you as soon as we possibly can. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.